0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We saw specifically last week that it's through the book of Exodus that we'll learn the history of Yahweh, specifically working to save his unique people, uh, to save them out of Exodus, to save them for his purposes, uh, to to then ultimately make his unmatched glory known, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. Um, He wants to work and move in powerful ways so that Uh, creation comes to know him better. And we said that um, while Exodus is history, it's not just us looking at old stories from the past about a people group that we don't hail from. Instead, it's our history. Uh, It's a picture of uh, who we are now because we've been grafted into God's people. And so uh, I challenged you that one of the reasons that we're studying Exodus is to see it as our history, uh, to remember and to see that God remembers and keeps his promises. To see the fame of God more deeply because we said last week that there's several places in Exodus where God communicates that he is working and moving to do certain things so that the people will know him, so that Israel will know him, so that Egypt will know him, so that specific individuals will know him. Uh, we want to understand our salvation better because it's in the book of Exodus where we see a lot of our understanding and concepts of salvation developed. The whole idea of the Passover and the, the perfect lamb being, sh- uh, uh, his blood being shed, and uh, we learn so much about how God saves us uh, through the book of Exodus. We want to see uh, that God's presence in our life is the most important thing, that God actively working and moving for our good is the most important thing that we could ever experience in this world. Uh, Moses talks about not wanting to move ahead and not wanting to go backwards without God's presence being with him. And so they don't want to return to Egypt. They don't even want to go to the promised land unless God goes with them. And I challenged you towards the end of last week's sermon from Psalm 8110 that we want to have ourselves completely wide open to the content of this book. That we want to be filled with the content of this book so that we can remember ultimately that our God is better than all other gods. Um, And So that's kind of the the springboard for where we're going in the coming weeks uh, with our study in the book of Exodus. We turn our attention to Exodus chapter 1 today, um, and we're going to cover the entire chapter, and I want to read it to you so that we can see the context of what's happening here at the beginning of this book. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph "'And he said to his people, "'Behold, the people of Israel are too many "'and too mighty for us. "'Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, "'lest they multiply. "'And if war breaks out, they join our enemies "'and fight against us and escape from the land. "'Therefore they set taskmasters over them "'to afflict them with heavy burdens. "'They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. "'But the more they were oppressed, "'the more they multiplied, "'and the more they spread abroad. "'And the Egyptians were in dread "'of the people of Israel.' So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Our summary sentence for today, God has purposed to keep his promises to his people and will not let the Pharaohs of the world thwart those plans, giving us confidence to endure the processes needed to prepare us for glory by obeying him above all else. God has purposed to keep his promises to his people, and will not let the pharaohs of the world thwart those plans, giving us confidence to endure the processes needed to prepare us for glory by obeying him above all else. For our kids, God's plans cannot be stopped, and what happens in our life is always his plan. Chapter 1 is really about remembering. It's about remembering uh, and and seeing that through the lens of God, God remembering his people. Um, You look here at the very beginning. We are familiar with, with these individuals that are mentioned here at the beginning of chapter one. These are uh, prominent figures in the book of Genesis. So you go way back to when we studied Genesis about eight years ago. Uh, you can go back and listen to those sermons even today and kind of see the history of God's people through that family. Abraham's lineage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and these sons that are birthed to him. Many of them, you're familiar with these names. These are God's people, right? Um, But God remembers his people beyond just this generation. And so as these people start to die off, these individuals are dying off, um, the people of Israel still remain fruitful and they increase greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. God remembers his promises even as these generations start to die off. He wasn't just the God of Abraham, just the God of Isaac, just the God of Jacob, and just the God of his children. He continues to be the God of these descendants, these that aren't even named for us beyond this, this people group here. It's God remembering his people, but you also see a piece here where Pharaoh forgets God's provision, right? Pharaoh fails to remember how God has provided for Egypt. The only reason Egypt is even in existence right now, the only reason Egypt even has the power to enslave the Israelites is because God provided for them during the famine through Joseph. Had God not brought Joseph to Egypt, had God not allowed Joseph to come to prominence and power in Egypt then the Egyptians would not have been spared through the famine. They would have starved to death. And yet God blessed them through Joseph. They became a great nation, a wealthy nation, because they had all the food and people had to come to them to get it. Right. And so Pharaoh forgets all of that. He forgets not just Joseph, but he forgets God's provision through Joseph. As long as the memory of Joseph's provision remains, the Hebrew people retreated well. But what we see here from the passage is that when that memory fades so does the Egyptian hospitality. No longer are they willing to care for the, uh, for, the, for the Israelites as they had done when Joseph was alive and when his memory lingered. Now, the question that I think we're gonna ask today and the question that we're gonna ask of ourselves, how did Israel remember during this time? I want us to think about that. How did Israel remember during this time? We, we see that God remembered his people. We see that the Egyptians forgot god and his provision but what's going on in the heads of israel what's going on in the heads of israel during this 400 time 400 year time period when they're serving as slaves to the egyptians how do we think they should have used those 400 years to sustain them what should they have been thinking about what should they have been processing through during those 400 years Did they remember the promises that God made in Genesis about those 400 years? Did they remember that God promised that growth was going to come to them? Did they remember that God was going to bring them out of Exodus and bring them to a land that was promised? Maybe we can see their commitment to multiplying, even in the midst of the oppression, as an act of faith. That God's provision of offspring would lead to a nation. Maybe we see as Pharaoh tries to stop them from growing, there's a commitment from the Israelites. There's a commitment to keep growing, to keep making babies, even in the midst of opposition. Even as they're exhausted from working all day and being slaves and beaten and harmed, even as there's death threats being made towards their children, the children of Israel keep having babies. And maybe that's an act of faith saying, you know what? We believe God's promise. He said we're going to be a great nation here. The way we become a great nation is we, we have babies, right? And so they continue to have babies. They continue to work towards multiplying. How should we live in a similar predicament? We live today in a world that continues to forget the importance of Christian values. Now, I don't think anybody believes that the Egyptian nation became God followers when Joseph showed up and God provided for them and spared them through the famine. But I do think we can probably at least think that they were sympathetic towards the God followers. They were sympathetic towards the Israelites. Hey, your God is providing for us right now, and so he maybe becomes one of many gods that we worship. Maybe they don't give their full devotion to him, but there would at least have been a sympathetic feeling towards them. Much like the beginning of our nation, where we had people who followed God and then maybe others who didn't. But there was at least a sympathetic feel towards those who did follow God, who did submit their lives to Christ. And our nation was founded on Christian values. Even if everybody wasn't Christian, even if everybody in our initial government didn't follow God, there was still a sympathy towards those values. We live in a world today that continues to forget the importance of those values. And opposition continues to rise towards the existence of God's people. What will we remember during this time? What will we choose or how will we choose to live? Now, what's so important during the book of Exodus is that there was a need for the children of Israel to stay distinct and separate from Egypt. Right? God had promised to make a great nation not out of Egypt, but out of Abraham's descendants. We need to be able to clearly see who those descendants are. Who are the, the lineage of Abraham? Who is the people of Israel? They have to stay distinct and different. The same is true for us today. God wants to grow his church. We have to remain distinct and different from this world. Will we remain separate from this world by longing for more than this world? Will we keep multiplying? Not simply by having babies, but will we keep multiplying by drawing others into worship and into fellowship with him? Those are questions for us to ask as we lead into chapter one. How are we living in this time period where we wait for Jesus to fulfill his promises? How did Israel live? How are we living? Will we stay distinctly different from the world around us? I titled today's sermon, Living Optimistically in the Face of Hostility, because chapter one, I think, gives us principles to see how do we live faithfully? How do we live optimistically? How do we live with hope even as opposition rises. like the, the, Chapter 1 really started, starts to steadily decline in the experience that Israel is having in Egypt. When they show up in Genesis, I mean, they get the red carpet, right? Pharaoh and his people are like, hey, Joseph, bring your family down. We're gonna, we're gonna give them the royal treatment. We're gonna give them a special place to live, and we're gonna take care of them and provide for them. By the end of chapter 1, I mean, they're being beaten into submission, and they're, and they're in verge of, distinct, of extinction If these wills of Pharaoh are carried out about killing the children, how do we live optimistically in a similar day and age where the church is being squashed and Christian values are being removed and um, we're under oppression for following Jesus? How will we find optimism to live with hope? Number one, we want to find hope in God remembering his promises. We want to find hope in God remembering his promises. The truth that we want to see here is that as time passes, we must remember God remains the same and his promises remain intact. As time passes, we must remember that God remains the same and his promises remain intact. In the book of Genesis, God's people were being threatened by famine. Are they going to have enough food to eat to survive? In the book of Exodus, their existence is being threatened by oppression. Will Will they abandon the hopes and promises of God in light of the oppression and the slavery that they're having to endure. Genesis 15, 14. We've referenced this several times already in our study. I want to go to it again because I think the truths there are so important for us understanding the book of Exodus. Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, when God is making promises to Abram about what is to come, the, the people that he's going to give him, the land that he's going to give them. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. What this passage tells us is the context for how Israel was supposed to be living and functioning during those 400 years. The perspective needed to be that everything happening is exactly as God planned for it. Everything that's happening here. So, as we see Genesis, or as we see Exodus 1 unfolding, if we don't have Genesis 15, we would read this and say, This is terrible. This is unexpected. Where is God in this? Why is God not working and moving? Why is God not sparing his people? Why is God allowing this to happen? But because we have Genesis 15, we can read Exodus chapter 1 and say, Oh, this is exactly what God said was going to happen. This is God remembering his promises, keeping his promises, fulfilling his plan. Everything is happening as God planned and everything's going to come out right. Everything's going to come out right because if I'm an Israelite during this time, right? I'm a Hebrew, I'm a a Jewish individual, Jewish man, and I'm enduring this time period. Maybe I'm in year 200, maybe I'm in year 300. And I get up every day and I'm beaten as a slave. I'm working and building projects and buildings and houses and storehouses. I'm building this for Pharaoh. And none of this means anything to me. None of this matters to me because none of this is promised to me. I could easily get depressed and discouraged and say, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? But if the oral traditions of Genesis 15 were passed down as they would have been, I'm also reminded of the fact that God promised that this is how it would be. But God also promised it wouldn't always be this way, that I'm coming out of this, that I'm going to be saved from this. The divine command to come to Egypt. Remember, we said that God told Jacob, definitely take your people to Egypt, take your family there. The divine command to come to Egypt, along with the divine promise that they would leave, was meant to sustain them during their oppression as they waited for this divine intervention. Let me say it again. The divine command to come to Egypt, along with the divine promise that they would leave, was meant to sustain them during their oppression as they waited for his divine intervention. It's the same promise that's given by Jesus to us as his disciples today. Think about our study in John and the things that he promised his disciples before he left them. He said, there's gonna be a delay in my return. You're gonna have to wait for me to come back. And you're going to suffer at times While you wait, I think he would give us the same message that the Israelites needed during those 400 years. All is right and all will be well. All is right and all will be well. I mean, look around. We see challenges, we see difficulties, we see trials. We don't need to wonder and say, Where is God in this? We look back to the Gospel of John and we say, Oh, this is exactly what God promised was going to happen that he wasn't going to be here for a while physically. We weren't going to see Jesus with us physically for a while. We were gonna suffer and oppression was gonna mount and and we were gonna be threatened and, and, and experience trials and difficulties and then he's gonna come back and he's gonna fix it all and he's gonna end it all. All is right and all will be well. For the believer, as I navigate each day, I need to remember, it is all right, it is all planned and all will be well. Here at the beginning of chapter one, the the listing of the people of Israel here, it matches the same listing given in Genesis chapter 46, which lets us know the same God who led the Israelites into Egypt is the same God that's going to lead them out. And the Hebrews came into the land believing the promises that God made in Genesis. We see in Hebrews 11 chapter 22, Joseph is mentioned. Remember, he's the one that went to Egypt first. His family comes and joins them, and then he dies in Egypt. And Hebrews eleven twenty two tells us, he told his family members, don't leave me here when we leave. He tells them, he says, this isn't our permanent home. I'm dying now, but there's coming a day when we are going to leave and go back to the promised land. God's going to give it to us. He said, it's gonna be 400 years because the the, the sin of the Amorites has to fill up. Like there's a chance for them to repent. If they don't repent, God's given us that land. Take my body with you. Don't leave my bones in Egypt. I wanna be laid to rest in the permanent resting spot, the promised land. They came into this, this position believing these things, believing these things. Number one, the promises that God keeps in Exodus had been centuries in the making. They'd been centuries in the making. He had made promises hundreds of years before to Abraham and his people that this is exactly what was going to happen. Centuries in the making, Exodus chapter 1 is fulfilling those promises. Number two, the acts of God in Egypt have implications for centuries to come. The acts of God in Egypt have implications for centuries to come. We have to remember that in Exodus chapter 1, the time that they are spending here the time they're spending in Egypt, it's completely under God's control. It's completely under God's control. He told them this was gonna happen. Now, it doesn't make life in Egypt necessarily easier, but it does make it right, right? It's not that the, the Israelites would necessarily think about these promises, and all of a sudden, being a slave that day would become easier on them. Didn't necessarily make the work easier, but it did make it make sense to them. It would have made it right in their minds that God is working and moving and doing something special here. Now, let's think and just kind of ask the question for a second, why Egypt? Why would God put his people in Egypt for this time period, and why would he allow them to suffer? Well, if you think about it, it's the perfect environment for them to grow while under protection without growing comfortable let me say that again. It's the perfect environment for 70 people, right? 70 people to become millions of people, to become a great nation. that's, That's a challenge because the 70 people are more likely to be absorbed into a other nation around them than to remain distinctly different. And yet God puts them in Egypt. And think about even the ways that he orchestrates the beginning of their history in Egypt. They come into Egypt, and, and, and Pharaoh and his people say, hey, why don't y'all go live in Goshen? Why don't y'all live separate from us in a different area, in this great area? Why don't y'all grow up there? You don't have to come live with us. You don't have to come be us. Why don't you stay there where you can kind of maintain your family identity? That's God's sovereign provision. And don't look at it and say, well, Adam, that's great. Like, that's cool that the Israelites didn't become Egyptians, as though it doesn't matter to us. This is our history, Remember? God promised Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land. But he said, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. We understand that blessing in the New Testament to be Jesus, right? We read the Old Testament as New Testament believers and find comfort and assurance and hope that every time God spares his people in the Old Testament, he is sparing our salvation. He is making it possible for Jesus to come as the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament. If, if we lose Israel, if they die in a famine, or if they become Egyptians, Jesus doesn't come on the scene. God protects his people, ultimately to save us in the New Testament. It's a perfect environment. They grow. They're under the protection of this world power, Egypt. Egypt, nobody's going to come threaten Egypt. Nobody's going to come attack Egypt. And so Israel goes from 70 to the millions because nobody comes and messes with them. Nobody comes and tries to attack them. Nobody comes and tries to squash them. They're under the protection of the Egyptians. And yet, as they start to grow, God keeps them from, becoming, uh, from wanting to become Egyptian, right? He brings slavery into their life to keep them from being comfortable in a land that is not their own, in a land that he hasn't promised to them. So they're growing, they're protected, they're safe, but they're not going to be comfortable, Right? They're gonna have trials and difficulties applied to keep their roots loose, to keep their tent pegs light. They're not gonna be able to drive deep. They're gonna be ready to go. When Moses shows up and says, hey, who wants to go with me? They're like, we do. Like, we don't wanna stay here anymore. We're out, right? God keeps them from being comfortable. It's a perfect environment. The same God of Exodus is the same God today. While much has changed about God's people, the God of his people has not. Like, you think about, I think about this, this is just a crazy thought, like, God isn't any different today than he was hundreds and thousands of years ago when he was working with these people in Egypt. It's the same God. It's not God back in his glory days. It's not God back in the good old days, right? God doesn't have to change and and grow and become better over the years. He's the same God. And the same God who kept promises to the Israelites in Egypt is the same God keeping promises to the church today. We find hope in that. We find hope in our daily life now as we wait for Jesus to come back, as we endure however many years are left until he comes. We keep trusting that his promises will be kept, that things are just as they should be, and that all will be made right. Number two, we find hope in God orchestrating his plans He's made promises, he's keeping those promises, but he's also orchestrating his plans to ensure those promises are kept. The truth here is that as the enemy works to stifle the plans of God, the enemy actually helps fulfill the plans of God. As the enemy works to stifle the plans of God, the enemy actually helps fulfill the plans of God. See what happens here in Exodus chapter one. The descendants of Jacob, they've come into the land. There's 70 of them. Everybody that we've ever heard of in Genesis dies. But the people of Israel, they're fruitful. They're increasing greatly. They're multiplying. They're growing exceedingly strong. The land is filled with them. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies fight against us, and escape from the land. Pharaoh works against God as the typical enemy. He's the typical enemy. He seeks to keep the nation from growing, and he seeks to keep the nation contained in Egypt. These are his two biggest fears. He's like, I don't want Israel to get so big that we couldn't conquer them if we needed to, and I don't want them to leave. He sees them as useful. He sees them as... Uh, as easy labor. And so he says, we don't want them to get too big because then that jeopardizes our superpowerness. And he says, we don't want them to leave because then we'll have to do all this work, right? So he says, "We we gotta figure this out. We gotta do something to contain them. What he rolls out is the opposite of what Babylon does. Now think about in the future when Israel's already a great nation and they go into Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians go about this a whole different way. Egypt has kept Israel very separate, very different, right? They're their own entity, and we're going to beat them and enslave them and and treat them differently. The Babylonians say, hey, come in and be us, right? We're going to change your name. We're going to make you forget all about your family history. We're going to make you forget all about your God and all about your culture and all about your traditions. You are now one of us, like Their whole process is totally different. We, we don't want you to overthrow us either. We don't want you to leave, so we're going to make you feel like you're one of us. We're going we're gonna to make you feel like you are us now, whereas the Egyptians are like, you're never going to be us. right? You live over there. You stay different from us. We're going to treat you so differently. We're going to create a caste system where we're in charge and you're the slaves. Pharaoh works against God and his plans here. This is exactly what needed to happen, though, for God to accomplish his plans, right? God doesn't need his family, his people, blending in with Egypt. He needs them distinctly different. Pharaoh says, I'm going to work them hard. They'll be too tired to rebel against us. We're going to kill their babies. We'll kill them at birth. And then when that doesn't happen, he says, we're going to to get the common people to just start tossing Israelite baby boys into the Nile River, which is crazy to think that people would actually do that crazy to think people would be that evil to do that. But it seems to be, in his mind, logical that they're going to carry this out. We don't have anything in the text that tells us how often this was happening and how frequently it was happening. But this was his mindset. Let's kill their babies. Let's work them to death. This is how we're going to control them. He's that that typical enemy of God because he resents God's people, he rejects God's promises, and he resists God's plans. Because God had promised and planned, we're going to grow them big, and we're going to leave. God's, and Pharaoh says, I don't want you to grow big, and I don't want you to leave. Number two, God ends up working against Pharaoh by using Pharaoh. The people don't fall to these circumstances. They don't, they don't, they don't give in to these circumstances. They aren't crushed by these circumstances. Let us deal shrewdly with them, Pharaoh says. So they don't multiply, so they don't leave the land. They, t- they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The people fall into dread of them. They, they, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter. They can't stop them. I put in my notes, Pharaoh created the very problem he was trying to avoid. Think about it. The very thing that he didn't want to happen, Israel to grow and Israel to want to leave, he creates that very problem. It'd be interesting to know what what would have happened if he had just left them alone, right? Maybe their desires would have have fallen in line with his. But because he beats them and makes life hard on them, they're ready to leave when Moses shows up. He made them multiply, he made them long to leave, and he made them open to an escape plan when it was offered. The very things that he tries to stop, God says, I'm going to use you to make those things happen. how God works. He he always keeps his promises. He always orchestrates his plans. He'll even use his enemies to accomplish those plans. We find hope in God orchestrating his plans. Enemy tries to stifle them, God accomplishes them. Number three, we find hope in God preserving his people. We find hope in God preserving his people. The truth here is that our world was never meant to be our permanent home. So God uses challenges to create within us a longing for more. Our current world was never meant to be our permanent home. So God uses challenges to create within us a longing for more. Think about your own life. You may be at a state right now where you would be ready to highlight the challenges. Maybe maybe you're at a different phase of life where you'd be ready to highlight the blessings. I would venture to say that for most of us, though, no matter how challenging the last couple of weeks have been or the last months or the last years or, or whatnot, I would, challenge, I would think that most of us, if I, if I just posed the question, hey, um, we need five people to go to heaven today, most of us would pause and say, I don't know. I don't know if I want to volunteer for that. Right? Like, as challenging as, and as difficult as your life may have been over the past several years, most of us, maybe all of us, would pause for just a second and say, do I want to raise my hand for that? Even with the challenges that God allows us to experience, there's still the temptation to be really comfortable with this life. This temporary, decaying, sin-ridden life, there's still enough that we find here that makes us comfortable to where all of us, I think, would pause at least for a second before we'd raise our hand and say, hey, I'll go today. And I would venture to say the ones that would raise their hand have probably experienced more of life than others, right? Maybe I can justify going today because I've done a lot of the things that I wanted to do. I think God allows us today, he allowed his people way back then to go through challenges and difficulties to keep us from being so comfortable that the idea of leaving what he's given to us is too much, He wants us to be loose with our roots because this isn't our permanent home. This isn't our permanent condition. This isn't what he has destined for us for eternity. God is working and moving in Exodus 1, and we don't need to look at it and say, where is God being good? He's letting them be burdened with taskmasters. He's letting them be burdened with slavery. We can look at it and say, man, God is so good here because God's not going to let them be content with Egypt because if they get content with Egypt... They'll never come out and learn to worship him. They'll fall into the worship of these other gods, these gods that can't satisfy, these gods that can't provide, these gods that can't make them content. They'll never want to come out and be separated. God's goodness is all through Exodus 1 because he won't let them be comfortable. He keeps them separate, he keeps his people separate. Think about it without slavery, they could have been absorbed, they could have become Egyptian. They would have lost their separate identity. God graciously gives them a social predicament that non-Hebrews would never willfully choose to enter into. It preserves their separateness. Nobody wants to be a Hebrew here. Why would you want to be a Hebrew and be a slave? So they maintain their identity. The suffering endured keeps Israel longing for something more, the something that God intends to give them. God keeps them separate. Number two, God keeps his people multiplying. This rapid, ongoing multiplication seems to be a miracle because Pharaoh thought his plans would stop it. And yet God seems to supersede his plans, intercede, and keeps making the children of Israel fruitful. Pharaoh seeks to eliminate the males to avoid this this strong army of men that could defeat him. Notice he allows the women to, to live. Why would he allow the women to live and not the men? Why would he just kill them all? Like, hey, let's just start killing the babies, and then they definitely can't get bigger. Right, he makes the mistake of leaving the females around to where the possibility of having babies still exists, all right? He says, get rid of the males, leave the females. Same mistake was made in Jurassic Park, right? They tried to get rid of the male dinosaurs, they leave the female dinosaurs, and there's dinosaurs all over the place by the end of the movie. There are Israelites all over the place by the end of this chapter, right? The females are left. Now, why would he leave the females? I think that in Pharaoh's mind, he liked having slaves, But he didn't like having Israelites. And so the concept would be if we remove the male identity, we keep the female ability to make babies, we will just interpose uh, these other individuals into the relationship. We'll bring Egyptians into the relationship. We'll bring other people from other nations into the relationship. We will allow these female Israelites to have babies. They just won't have Israelite babies, right? We'll keep the slave industry going. It just won't be with the Israelites. We'll just make this mixed race, this this different breed of people that don't exist right now, and we'll still have our slaves, but we won't have this national identity of people saying, we want to leave and be Israel. It was a plan that on paper should have worked. He should have been able to stifle them. He should have been able to kill the males. He should have been able to stop their growth, but he should have been able to keep what he wanted, which was the slaves. And yet God works in between this to keep his plans intact. Pharaoh wants to allow uh, the the, the males to die, wants to allow the women to to be kept so that he can support what he wants to do, and God intervenes. God intervenes. The midwives won't follow through with the plan. So the the slavery didn't work. The people are still having tons of babies even though they're working hard. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So his plan doesn't work. His plan doesn't work. We'll see why here. Number four, find hope in God providing his prize. How do we live today as we wait for Jesus to come back? How are the Israelites supposed to live waiting for that 400 years to expire and for deliverance to happen? Find hope in God remembering his promises. Find hope in God orchestrating his plans. Find hope in God preserving his people. And then lastly, find hope in God providing his prize. The truth here is that faithfulness in response to opposition will be potentially costly now, but the fruitful reward to come will be forever invaluable faithfulness in response to opposition will be potentially costly now, but the fruitful reward to come will be forever invaluable. Number one, obeying God is always the safest thing to do. Now, this is a scary thing for them to do right here. They have been given instructions from Pharaoh to kill the Israelite boys, to kill the Hebrew boys, and they don't do it. They don't do it. The Bible says they feared God more than Pharaoh. It's the same thing that Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those that can hurt your body. Fear the one who's over your soul. Don't fear man. Don't fear ridicule. Don't fear opposition. Fear the one who is the king of the universe. For our youth, you guys are under such uh, intense pressure and temptation to not separate from the world, but to be in the world and to be of it. I know you are. I know you go to school with people who are drawing you in to be like the world. Maybe even they name the name of Christ, but they try to show you that you can be a Christian and you can live just like the world and it's okay. And there's this great temptation to give into that. This great temptation to, to not go against what your friend group may be saying is the right thing to do. Even though you know what God's word says, your friend group starts to persuade you and to make you think differently. The Bible says we don't fear man, we don't fear the opposition, the ridicule, we don't fear being made fun of, and we fear the one who's over our soul. And these two midwives, they say, you know what, we're not going to follow, we're not going to follow Pharaoh's plan, we fear God more than him. Who were these ladies? And were two women that were probably over the entire uh, midwifery company for the Hebrews, right? Like they're probably the two head ones, like they're, they're responsible for deviating the plans to everybody else. God chooses to use these two women to stop the greatest man on the planet at this time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. These two women, these two women, that their primary job is to help women have other babies, and they stop the greatest ruler of the earth at that time. They won't carry out his plans. Now, there's disagreements as to whether these women are Egyptian or Hebrew, because they are potentially Egyptian women who are given the task to be the midwives. For the Hebrews, but it's also possible that they're Hebrews who have that same role as well. Um, If they're if they're uh, Hebrews, it's hard to reconcile how Pharaoh would expect them to kill their own. Right? It's hard to expect how how Pharaoh would expect them to just kill their own. But they're also given Hebrew names here, which lends themselves to being Hebrew. We're not exactly sure who they are. Are they Egyptian? Are they Hebrew? What's most important about them is they've chosen to fear God whether they are Egyptian or Hebrew. They've heard enough about God over the years that they've given themselves to him and obedience to him. So they enact civil disobedience here in the name of divine obedience. Not much different than what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do in uh, Daniel chapter 1 through 3. Not much different than what the apostles do in Acts 4 through 5, where they say it's better to obey God than man. Better to obey God than man. Now, we don't know if they actually lied here or not. Obviously, the Bible condemns lying and dishonesty, and God is truth, and so it's hard to reconcile potential lies being told here, and God signing off on that with approval. They may simply have just pitched what exactly was happening um, in the fact that they were maybe willfully showing up late, right? Hey, uh, this, this, this Hebrew lady is about to have a baby. Great, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna get some coffee. I'm gonna read the paper, um, keep me updated. I'll get there a little bit later this afternoon. And whoa, wow, it's afternoon. You already had the baby. I guess I, I guess I can't kill it, right? Like, we don't know if this was a intentional delay on their part to where they could really stand before Pharaoh and say, you're not going to believe this. Hebrew women, I mean, they just pop them out. Like, you don't even get there in time to help them. I mean, it's just crazy. It's way different than the Egyptian women. I don't know if Pharaoh buys it or not, but he's like, you know what? Like, I'm just not going to talk to you ladies anymore, right? He's like, I'm just going to put out an appeal to everybody. If you see a Hebrew lady walking around with a boy, grab her boy and throw it into the Nile River. It's crazy. It's crazy that Pharaoh, as an enemy of God, would work in such a way like this. But what we find is that God won't allow those plans to be accomplished. He keeps working and moving in such a way where it says that the Israelites continue to multiply Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God didn't have to spare the midwives here. He could have allowed it to go on south for him. He could have allowed them to be killed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into their disagreement with Nebuchadnezzar with the belief that, hey, God can spare us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we'll worship him. I think the midwives went into that meeting with Pharaoh saying, God can spare us from this, but even if he doesn't, we're not killing baby boys. Like We're not going to do this. God does spare them. Just like he did me Meshach, and Abednego. He does spare them here. Obeying God may feel scary, but it's always the safest thing to do. And number two, obeying God is always the most rewarding thing to do as well. It's always the most rewarding thing to do. It's the safest thing and the most rewarding thing. Exodus one twenty says, so God dealt well with them. God turned to these two women and he dealt well with them. Verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now some people believe they were the head midwives because they could not have babies themselves, that they had earned this role, they had progressed to this position because they were incapable of having children, and then God opened their wombs and gave them children. I don't know if that's the case or not, Um, but what we do know is that he, he multiplied their family themselves, not just Israel. And again, we've talked about this. God works with the big people, Israel, but he's also working with individuals too. God works with the big global church. He works with us as individuals too. He takes these two women and deals well with them. Now I put in my notes and we're almost done. How he deals well with us isn't always consistent, but the well treatment is always assured. Let me say that again. This is important because we're saying that in this intermediate time where we're waiting for Jesus to come back, one of the things that keeps us motivated is we find hope that God is going to provide his prize to us how he deals well with us isn't always consistent, but the well treatment is always assured. God didn't have to give these women their own children. It's not a promise that if you'll be obedient to God, he'll give you children, right? Like we don't, we don't do this and expect God to then pay us what we think we're owed. No, we respond in obedience and God promises to deal well with us. And that's gonna look different for you than it looks for me. But at the end of the day, we're going to be able to say, God did well to me. God did well to me. What did it look like for you? Well, it looked like this. He did this in my life, and he worked this out, and he made this happen. He didn't do that for me, but he did this for me instead. He promises to deal well with us. He shows that through the ways that he deals with these Egyptian or with these Hebrew midwives. He does well with them. Note here that the allures of Egypt, the oppression of taskmasters, and the death threats of Pharaoh could not stop Israel from prospering. We'll close with this, going back to Pharaoh's discussion with his inner people. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Pharaoh says, everything we're about to do here is to keep them from multiplying. And what we read throughout the rest of chapter 1 is they multiplied even greater. They multiplied even greater. What's the application for us? I want you to leave asking yourself this question. Do I remember his promises quickly when his plans seem to not make sense? And do I believe his well-treatment is a sufficient enough reward to warrant my ongoing obedience to him? Do I remember his promises quickly when his plans seem to not make sense? And do I believe his well-treatment is a sufficient enough reward to warrant my ongoing obedience to him? And you'd hope to think that that Israelite individual comes home at night. He's worked all day. His back is beaten. He's bloodied from the taskmaster. He's tempted to grumble and complain and say, where is my God in this? I picture the conversation happening in the household where he and his wife begin to talk and there's reminders about Don't forget, don't forget he promised this. He promised it was going to be challenging. He promised it was going to be difficult. But there were even greater promises that that was involved with, that that he was going to make us into a great nation. And look, like think about how much bigger we are now. We're not 70 anymore. Like we're in the millions now. He also promised this was going to come to an end. We were going to leave. We were going to be with him It's the same promises that are given to us today. Whatever you may be facing this past week, whatever you're facing this upcoming week, we can know that it's all well and that it's all right. that it's all going to be dealt with appropriately. That Jesus is coming back. We stay obedient to him as we wait. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you that you you have chosen to treat us well. That through salvation... Through Jesus, you have made it possible for us to be in right relationship with you. And as we live for you now in obedience, God, we are thankful that we are your children. We are thankful for the assurances and promises that you work all things for our good. Help us to remember that. Help us as we face challenges this week to not grow discouraged and to not doubt your goodness. Lord, help us to see your goodness in the challenge. Help us to be uncomfortable this week with the life that you've given to us. We certainly want to be content, but God, give us, an unhe- or give us a healthy uncomfortableness with it, that this is not what we long for, that there's so much more to come. Lord, help us not to be enamored with the things of now to where we lose sight of eternity. God, help us to have roots that are shallow. Help us to look to the heavenly country as Abraham did one to come. Even Abraham knew the promised land that was promised wasn't the greatest promised land that was coming. Lord, help us to remember that too. You've blessed us well, you've treated us well. But Lord, help us to keep multiplying by drawing others to you. Help us to endure the processes and the challenges that we face right now. Help us to realize those things are getting us ready for glory. The challenges that you give to us are to make us desirous of the escape plan that you've given that when you come back, you're taking us with you to a reality and an eternity that we can't even imagine. What help us to long for that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sobhope.org.